Welcome one more time to Encounter Church. We are so excited that you're here today, and as much as we are excited for you are here today, next week is a super exciting Sunday as well, because we have a, uh, we have a special surprise and a big announcement. Uh, so the surprise has to do with some of the configuration kind of happening over on that side of the building. If you're on one of the serving teams, don't worry. It's going to be okay. It doesn't uh, impact the teams necessarily, um, but it's going to be a pretty fun surprise. And the announcement is a surprise as well. So you're going to have to come back next week, remember, all together at 10 o'clock in the morning. It is going to be exciting, and it's a really cool thing as well. Okay, today we're in a series right now called We Are For. Remember, because the church is so often known for what it's against, we're taking a stand, standing up and speaking up for what we are for. We are for keeping Jesus at the center. We are for doing life together. Last week we heard, remember, that we are for loving where we live, even if we don't like it, all the time. We love it because God has unconditionally loved each and every one of us. This morning, we take a look at a hard value, not experiencing God daily, although that's a, you know, that's a tough one, but not as hard as the second one, practicing truth. What's so incredibly difficult is this one, is because if you're kind of like me, and maybe many of you are, is that we don't always love to to practice truth. We don't always love to receiving truth, especially when it cuts, especially when it, when it has some teeth to it, when it might challenge some of our understandings of some things. We don't always love the idea of practicing truth. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of set the context for us a little bit, is to just describe how tough it is exactly to, to practice truth today. Barna Research, a well-respected research group, came out with a study not too long ago that said that about half, 48% of Americans, self-identify as being post-Christian. Some of you kind of know the idea of pre-Christian. That's a, you know, not really sure who Jesus is or what the Bible is about, who God is uh, in Christianity. But post-Christian is, I know, or at least I think I have a pretty good understanding about what the Bible is or, or who Jesus is or what God is all about. And I'm rejecting it. I'm moving past that. I'm post-Christian. You can understand how remarkably difficult it is to start to grow the seeds of faith in a not pre-Christian, but post-Christian culture. In West Michigan, if we could zoom in right here on Grand Rapids, where we are, um, it's even more difficult, I think. And or we at least are an embodiment of that post-Christian culture. Um, okay, so just kind of some numbers, maybe some anecdotes. Stick with me as we, as we wade through math on some of this. But um, some of you are like from around here, you're passing through here, and you kind of have an idea. And so I just kind of put together some numbers, some research. I'm from here. I'm from about 15 minutes west of here. I'm from a town. Get this. It's not actually a town. It's a municipality. It's whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, I'm from a place that has a name. Let's say that just a minute. 15 minutes west of here, where we have the distinction, the Guinness Book of world record holder for the most number of churches on a single street. You're not clapping. Some of you are now because some of you may also be from Georgetown Township. The city is named Jenison. The street is Baldwin Avenue. Kind of cuts, right? Yeah, a couple people, right? Uh, there's over 60 houses of worship on Baldwin Street. That's where I grew up not too long, uh, not, too, uh, not too far from there. And, uh, and some of you are like, I didn't even know that there was that many people living in that town. But apparently there is. And everybody who grew up there like I did, you're probably in a couple of different churches. Uh, no, okay, so you start to put some, some facts on this, right? Because Grand Rapids as well, along with that, has a reputation, has kind of anecdotal and, and also some empirical evidence shows that the, there's more people, or there's more, sorry, churches per capita uh, than in most places in the United States, the U.S. average. 
So you're like, well, we are like killing it. I mean, we've got all these churches. Before, you know, you climb up on that high horse, I have to like pull us down a little bit and say, maybe we're not totally as killing it as what we think we are because uh, the other side of that is even though there's a ton of churches in the area, uh, according to Percept Group, we look at kind of zip code, faith by zip code. We look at all the zip codes in and around Grand Rapids, including Jenison, where I'm from, where we are right now in Kentwood. Um, if we look at all the zip codes around, there's a higher rate of spiritual uninvolvement in any faith whatsoever than the national average. And so we kind of put these two things together and we're saying, does it make sense or does it seem like there's a lot of churches, but not like a totally ton of full churches? Like, does it kind of confirm the suspicion that maybe, maybe there used to be a lot more people who are actively involved in their faith, whatever that faith is, than what they are right now? And kind of put these things together. And I talked to a bunch of people, shared that with them. It's like, yeah, that's kind of that's where, where we are. So I just want to set up the, the point that we're very much in this like post-Christian, I kind of know, I have an idea about what it's like, and I'm rejecting it, and I'm moving on. To just sort of show that, that like the, the things are kind of a little dark, and I do, I'm afraid of being like the angry preacher guy who's like against culture. So I'm like, not, not necessarily. I think we're called to engage, we're called, we're asked by God to run towards and influence culture. But I do have to say that, that things do kind of look a little dark at times, and that's all right because the light shines brightest in the dark. Amen? Amen. Right. So we're going to run towards this thing and we're going to influence by talking today about what it means to practice truth because that's that light that we're talking about and how remarkably difficult that is in a post-Christian culture especially is because people are going to hear us talking about truth. People are going to hear us talking not just about my truth, guy in a microphone with a stage, or your truth, or our leadership team's truth. We're going to hear about God's truth that's demonstrated in the Bible. And because we live in a post-Christian culture, it's going to anger people. It's going to confuse people. It's going to offend people. It's going to challenge people. I mean, these are like, this is a really, really difficult thing to talk about. So as we talk about like practicing truth as demonstrated by this collection of stories and teachings that we call the Bible, and we, as we talk about practicing that truth, the question that kind of lingers out is like, how do we do that? How do we do that without so completely infuriating, challenging, or confronting, or, or, um, or angering everybody else around? Well, there's one guy in particular that looks at this and says, I think I have an answer for you. In fact, I think I've got the best answer that really any religion or any kind of spiritual set of beliefs could ever come up with. There's this one guy who said, I think that I know what it means to so perfectly embody and demonstrate what it means to practice truth because this is a guy that I know who so perfectly embodied this that even though he even though he would drop these truth bombs and people would get angry even though he'd walk into a situation and he would infuriate people he would challenge people and he would offend people like those people would still show up the next week or the next day to continue listening to what in the world this guy has to say and to do that, we're going, that guy that I'm talking about is the, is the person, John, in the Bible. And John, of course, is talking about his friend, Jesus, who so perfectly embodied what it means to practice 
truth. Okay, let's go there. We're going to go to the book of John, and we're going to start off uh, here in John chapter 1. So I invite you to turn that. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, uh, but the, uh, the words are going to be on the screen behind me as well, so you can follow along that way. Um, and uh, don't forget, we've got those series notebooks in the backs of the chairs too, if you'd like to, uh, like to write a couple things down. Uh, all right, so let's start off. And John says this. John says, listen, I walked with this guy, I talked with this guy, I lived with this guy. And I guess the best way that I could describe him is like saying he's, and the best word he comes up with is word. It's like he's the word. He's the word at creation. He's the let there be light. Like he's like that word. And and that thing, that, that person became a person. It's like the artist stepped into his own painting and then they rejected him and and didn't believe that he was the artist or he was the creator. So listen to how John, the best as he can, puts it together. He goes, in the beginning was the Word. Now remember, he lived with this guy and the Word was with God. I mean, he ate and slept and did everything with this guy and the Word was God. Now could you just imagine what it would take for you to like live with somebody for three years or so and to walk away from your experience with them and say, I think they're God. No, because like when you live with somebody, you see them well-fed and you see them hangry, right? When you live with somebody, you see, you see them at their best and you see them at the absolute worst. And John did too with Jesus. And he walks away and goes, the best way that I can describe it is he, he was not only with God, but he was God. And he was with God in the beginning And through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And he looks at his friend Jesus, and he goes, In him, right there, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And no matter how dark it ever gets or how dark it ever got, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, and I'll add, will not, overcome it. And then in verse 14, he's describing the word, and he goes, Now that word, Jesus, that word, the Son of God, became flesh, and he says, and made his dwelling among us. Now, that's like kind of an interesting, like, churchy, religious-y kind of word. Like, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I mean, it's like, it's, it's one of those things that maybe if you grew up in church, you hear it a lot, and so it kind of gets, like, void of all meaning. And if you didn't grow up in church, you're like, why is he saying it like that? Now, the word that dwelling among us it literally means in the language that this was written in the kind of the colloquial sort of common understanding of the, of the passages, the word came and camped among us, right? The word came, and the, specifically the word is, is tabernacled among us, but that's worse, not better than dwelling, right? The, the word came, and, and it like pitched a tent, and, and, it's like, and it, it hung out, and he hung out with us. Now, the reason why tabernacling is so important is because that's what the people did way back in the Old Testament. Remember, we'll come back to this now. Uh, The book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, God brings the people from the land of slavery out into the wilderness where they live in tents called tabernacles, just what they call them. Then they tabernacled for 40 years and before God brought them into their promised land where they could finally move into a house. Why? That, that, that is so incredibly important to the story of God is because every year, and John was well aware of this and Jesus was too, every year the people would go outside for two weeks at a time during the festival of booths, sometimes called that, sometimes called the festival of tabernacles, and they would leave their homes and their bricks and their indoor plumbing and go outside and they would tabernacle out in the wilderness simply to remind themselves about what God had saved them from from. 
Some of you go camping for that same reason. I leave my indoor plumbing and my air conditioning and my heat maybe now and go outside and I huff it up, backpack it for two weeks to remind myself to appreciate the finer things in life. You guys are all campers. I just offended everybody. Sorry about that. I'm not a camper. That's hotel guy, Holiday Inn. Hilton membership rewards. Um, that's me. Uh, so they, they, the people would tabernacle consistently all, uh, every single year to remind themselves about the good things that God has done. The significance of that here is that now John is saying, yeah, yeah, this guy, the son of God, he came and he tabernacled, he camped with, you think, Dirk, you think you've got a bad, like going on backpacking it from, and, and going back to your house at the end of that. This guy came from heaven and he's like backpacking it here on earth before he goes back to heaven, right? Imagine Imagine that. This guy comes, or Jesus comes, makes his dwelling among us. We say my camped or tabernacles makes his dwelling. Eugene Peterson from The Message, I love this. He says uh, in his version of the Bible, his translation, he goes, um, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, which I think puts it so perfectly, puts it so well, because it brings it in today's language. Just like John was trying to bring it into his day's language. He's like, you know, if I could describe Jesus, in, in, in any way, John starts off, right? And he goes, it's like the house at, for sale at the end of the street. You know, you're always wondering who your neighbors are going to be. I hope they're not crazy. I hope they're kind of like me. And they like, move in. And God moves. God buys the house and moves in, right? And then you go over there with, like, your plate of cookies, like, welcome to the neighborhood and realize it's God. I should have brought better cookies. <laughs> That's what it's like. And there's so many questions that you might have that come out of that. And that's exactly what John is hoping for. There's so many questions coming out like, I, have, I, I wonder so many, what's it like to be neighbors with God? I mean, does he mow his lawn every week? Should I mow my lawn every week? Like, is he going to bring new neighbors cookies? I don't know. I mean, is he going to keep the music down? Is he going to invite me over for a party? Is he going to serve beer at the party? Like, I don't know. I have so many questions about what it's like to be neighbors with God. And that's the point that John is making. He goes, listen, you got to understand. Jesus helps us answer all of those questions because he's like, like a real guy. And also God. And he lives in the neighborhood. And so when we look at him, we see something so incredible. Because we see how we were supposed to live. How we were created to live in Jesus, in the neighborhood. And John continues that and he goes, we've seen. And now he says, we have seen. Now he doesn't mean like, like all of us, like Christians for all the times. I mean, Maybe we have too. But for him, he's saying, we have seen, as in like, I've seen it, and like a couple of us other guys, like, like we specifically have seen our friend Jesus, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. He came from the Father full of both, of both grace and truth. He came from the Father Full of grace and truth. Not one or the other, but all of both of them. You see, we look at something like grace and truth, and, and we tend to see these two things as, as like opposites, right? We tend to see these things, well, you can have grace or you can have truth. 
There's a reaction that you can have to your kids, to your staff, to your employees, to your boss. You can walk onto the job site and engage the dudes you work with or on the factory line. You can bring grace or you can bring truth and you have to make that choice. But John is saying, listen, when Jesus moved into the neighborhood and we saw him react and we saw him act with his neighbors, he never chose. Like he, he was the full-on embodiment of grace and truth. And I want to know, like, how in the world is that possible? Because when I try to, like, put that thing together, in my mind, I'm like, you're, you're asking for, like, a square rectangle or something like that. It does, it, oh, that one does make sense. A square circle. That one does, that, you're asking for, like, a square circle. And, it, and it's like, philosophically, that's impossible. But, but John is like, no, no, no. For Jesus, it wasn't like that. For Jesus, grace and truth aren't like a, a square circle. For Jesus, grace and truth is like an orange circle. I mean, it's like the most natural thing in the world to him. Every time he walks into a situation, he's full of both grace and truth. Now, we get these things out of sync. We, we, we do one without the other. We're truth people or we're grace people. We're truth churches or we're grace churches. We, we mess this up all the time, but Jesus didn't, and that's why we look at him. That's why Christianity is so awesome, highly recommended, uh, <laughs> because our religious, our system, you know, this whole thing, our, our beliefs is aren't based on a set of rules or priorities. It's based on a person who moved into the neighborhood, tented, camped, tabernacled with us, and he was full of grace, full of truth. And, and you guys know what it's like when these things get out of whack because you know no, like the truth person. You've got a friend. Maybe you came here with him today, and he's like Mr. Truth. You might not be leaving with him today because he's Mr. Truth, or, or you might not be friends with him a long time because he's Mr. Truth, and chances are it doesn't take real long before he says something that upsets you, offends you, challenges you, or just really bites into you and you don't like, and it's uncomfortable. That's Mr. Truth. Mr. Truth is like the guy who takes the Bible, and it's not really a story of God that he's telling, a rescue of the world, but the Bible is a collection of verses, and he's always like, like lining them up in such a way to inflict maximum damage. Like the Bible's a collection of verses. He's always got one in the chamber, and he's just like firing them off all the time. He's got this thing. He's got a verse for everything. But in the Bible, Mr. Truth is, uh, is a hammer that he likes to hit people over the head with. Like Mr. Truth is sometimes rough to be around. And these things kind of, kind of get out of whack. Now, I didn't. Um, uh, I, this isn't like my thing, it, you know. Like I don't know about this because I don't have like teenagers and things like that. But I did some reading uh, over the past couple of weeks, kind of about like this truth, grace sort of combination. And what I'm told and what I kind of came across, I thought it was important enough to share it along with some of you because you might be in that boat someday. Uh, is that, is that if you want to raise rebellious teenagers, practice truth without grace, right? And some of you might kind of know what I'm talking about because you've got teenagers and you're like, oh man, that's totally on or off or whatever. I'll get your reactions later. But if you want to raise rebellious teenagers, practice truth without grace. Another way to say it is, is, is practice the rules without the relationship, which I think is so incredibly helpful because I look back in the Old Testament, I referenced that story of Exodus earlier about how God brings his people out of slavery. He puts them smack dab in the middle of the desert. What does he do? He gives them rules. Moses goes up on the top of the mountain. He's got, you know, no other gods before me. Uh, honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy, right? Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't have sex with people you're not married to. Like this whole thing, it gives him the rules. Moses comes down the mountain. And even though God was trying to have this profound relationship with his people, 
and the rules are, are part of that. It's like the people didn't want a relationship back with God. And so what do you see? All throughout those 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, you, you see people rebelling again and again and again. You see 40 years of constant and incessant rebellion because for them, the people had the rules without and the void of a relationship present. So what does God do? In his infinite wisdom, and John is writing out this story, he goes, listen, if the problem is rules without relationship, God steps in. Like God literally steps in via the incarnation. We'll celebrate that at Christmas time. God shows up and says, no, this is how badly I want to have a relationship with each one of you. I'm willing to be a part of the creation that I have made, even though I know it's going to cost me at the end of the day. God is saying the relationship is that important to me. Uh, okay, that's truth, maybe in the, in the absence of grace or rules in the absence of relationship. But the, the alternative is just as bad, just in the opposite direction. Because some of you get offended and, and challenged and you don't like to hang out with Mr. Truth. Others of us get, get offended at times or get frustrated, better yet, with uh, like Ms. Grace. Because some of you maybe are friends with Ms. Grace and, and the relationship lasts longer and it doesn't go on for like a couple of weeks like it does with Mr. Truth. I mean, this friendship could span years because, because really it's so easy. Every time you show up, Ms. Grace has a kind word for you. Every time you show up, Ms. Grace is agreeing with you. Every problem that you have, she says, I know, that is a huge problem and they're totally in the wrong. And so you can see how the relationship goes on and on and on for so long because, this is important, whenever you talk to Ms. Grace, it's, it's like there's a mirror that's put up and you don't see who Ms. Grace actually is. You just see the reflection of yourself in that mirror and you're like, yeah, you're so awesome, depending on your level of self-esteem. <laughs> this, this is a great thing. And so you can go years without actually getting to know Ms. Grace at all because all she's doing for you is just reflecting back to you what she thinks or what she knows you want to hear. And the problem with that is that you spend years of your life, and I hope you don't, but some of us do, spend years of your life without ever being challenged, without ever having the opportunity to grow, without ever having the possibility of any kind of change, let alone transformation in your life. Because conversations and friendships and that doing life thing together that we talked about a couple weeks ago is like trying to chop down the tree with a big wet noodle. It's a weird example, I know, but it's something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere, all right? That's what the relationship with a, a grace without truth. Now, I'll be real with you, because this series is about, like, us, you know, Christians, it's a faith. I think everybody should keep Jesus at the center, do life together. I mean, these are, like, tenets of, tenets of the faith. But, but if I'm going to try to land this thing for us uniquely, like, where are we? That's grace, truth. You know, it's not a spectrum. Jesus was very clear. It's not this one or the other, because Jesus had them both. Like, what do we struggle with? Encounter church. And I'd say, well, before I just give you the example, I'll just say this. One of my fears... One of the things that, that keeps me up at night that I have actually lost sleep over is this. I worry that on a weekend-to-weekend basis, what we do here during our worship is engaging enough 
and inspiring enough to like offer you these snack packs of grace and truth that are small enough to keep you engaged, small enough to keep you inspired, but not big enough to actually help transform your life. Does that make sense? Right? So, so that what we can do is, is provide a compelling enough worship experience. The music is part of that. The songs is part of that. Speaking is part of that as best as I can do. That's, that's inspiring and engaging enough for you to go out there every single week and, and be you. And Jesus doesn't want you to just be you. Jesus wants you to be transformed. And to do that, to experience that change that I think God wants for you. Like Jesus, we have to be full of grace. Every single interaction, every conversation, every message, every song, full of grace. But at the same time, be that embodiment of truth like Jesus was when he walked into the room, when he walked into every single conversation that he had. And I'll just give you a hint, because this is, this is so tough to like get this, to get this right. Just something, just kind of as a side, this is bonus material, um, you know, worth the price of admission, something like that. Um, what's really hard about this is that we all think that we're practicing truth. I mean, could we just like get that out on the table and say, no matter, we've, there's hundreds of people like here listening in, all this sort of stuff. And, and each and every one of us, like we think we have the truth. And that's okay to say. If you didn't think that you had an idea about what the truth was, like you'd probably ask around until you found an idea about what truth is. Like all of us, you know, we drive by that sign. This is so unhelpful. We drive by that church sign that says like, the Bible says it, that settles it. And it's like, no, it doesn't at all, Right? Like, that's just the beginning of a conversation. Like, we read something like that, and you're like, according to whom? You? Me? Some other guy? Like, what's the deal? What's going We all think that we have a handle on the truth. So maybe just as a starting point, and trying to rec recognize truth, maybe just as a starting point, we take these words, Dr. Timothy Keller, I, don't, I never quote him. He's not very helpful. So that's, <laughs> he says, if the God that you worship, some of you are around here for a while, it's like every Sunday, it's embarrassing really. But the God, if the God that you worship never disagrees with you, you may simply be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If the God that you worship, if the God that you read about in the Bible, if the God that you sing to, if the God that you worship never disagrees, never challenges, never confronts, never has teeth, you may simply be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And friends, I hope and I pray that you press on for more than that. Because God, I think, wants more than that for you. God doesn't want you to spend your life and your hopes and spend your worship on just yourself 
Because as we, as we do that, it's, it's like we close in up on ourselves. And if that was allowed to continue on year after year, decade after decade, way on into eternity, that, that destination of final what it looks like, it isn't going to look like heaven. It's starting to look like the other place. And God is saying, no, 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 you don't want that. You, you want the, the, the kind of, of truth that confronts, the kind of truth that has the possibility of change. You want the kind of truth spoken in grace that can transform you. And John is saying, I don't get it all the time. And I'm saying, Dirk, me personally, say, I don't get this all the time. You know, like I, I'll say things. Sometimes on stage, sometimes just in conversation that I read the Bible, I'm convicted on. But I also know that I'm wrong at times. And sometimes I think that I'm right at times, and you don't either. And I can't tell you how many conversations that I have had. Often it's like in the, the premarital enrichment time. I love doing, you know, weddings, and we kind of get together um, a bunch of times beforehand. I like to say I'm full service, you know. We do this premarital enrichment thing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And we get together. And one of the things we talk about is that how uh, I, I believe that God says in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, flee from sexual immorality. So we kind of lay it out there and say, I don't think you should have sex with people you're not married to, even if you're engaged. Right? And we can agree on that. We can talk about that. We can disagree on that. And this is just the list goes on and on and on of like reason, the rationale of why all this sort of thing is. I'm not saying that I get it right all the time, or you or I, all of us get it right all the time. But but I know that without that, without that teeth, without that confrontation, there isn't ever a possibility for change. There isn't a possibility for transformation to come out of that. And so I love, and I, oh man, I've had so many conversations with people just like, well, this is, you know, what does the church believe? What do you believe? And we'll talk about this personally. Well, I've had this thing, and I'll speak into that thing, and I can see that it's not landing all that well. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, it's a little too kind of out there for me one way or the other. And I'll ask the question, I'll say, so, like, you coming back? And my favorite answer is, somebody told me this one time, they said, you know what, I don't always agree with everything that's said from week to week, but yeah, I'm coming back. I'm like, that is such a cool picture about what, what this life together, what this truth and grace thing is like. Because right there, we, we, we see the, even when we disagree, even when we say things, that we know are going to challenge, that we know are going to confront, that we know have teeth to it, there's still this sense of, of speaking in such a way that says, I still want to come back. Sometimes that isn't the case. Sometimes we just lose, lose people, lose conversations. Sometimes you'll just lose friends. And we know that we don't always get it right, especially when that happens. But we look over at Jesus, and we look over at Jesus and we see somebody who did it so right, who did it so perfectly that every interaction and every setting and every conversation that he walked into, he was so full of grace. But at the same time, he didn't shy back and he was so full of truth all at the same time. We look at Jesus. John says in John chapter 3, Jesus goes to a conversation that he has. He plops himself right down in Samaria, his enemy territory for a good Jewish guy like Jesus. He sits down by a well. A woman comes to him, middle of the day when it's hottest, she's all by herself. 
a Middle Eastern culture. She's by herself. He's by himself. Now they're together. She's coming at a time when she's trying to avoid everybody else. And Jesus starts talking to them. And they're like, dude, this is so wrong. Like, do you have any idea in this culture how far you should be from this setting? And Jesus says, can you give me a drink? You've got to be kidding me, breaking those rules like that. And in the conversation, Jesus says, listen, why don't you, why don't you go call your husband and come back? And she goes, I don't have a husband. And Jesus goes, you know, you're right. You don't have a husband. Fact is, you've had five husbands now. And the guy that you're with currently, you're not married to. And I'm going, Jesus, like, you don't lead with that, man. Like, didn't you go to seminary? Have some compassion. And Jesus, he lays that truth bomb on her, right? He knows how she feels. She knows that he knows how she feels. And then after that truth, he follows it up and he goes, hey, you know what? You know what? I haven't told anybody this. I haven't told John. I haven't told James or Peter. I haven't told anybody this yet. But you know what? Jesus goes, I'm the Messiah. I'm the long-expected one, and I can give you something to fill that hole in your heart. Jesus called it living water. I can give you something to plug that missing area in your life that you have been trying to fill with men your entire life. I can fix that brokenness inside of you, full of truth, and not shying away on grace either. That's Jesus. That's him. And Jesus, he goes on from there, right? And he goes... He goes on right to his death, hanging on a, on a cross, right? They're executed him. And the, the guy on his right and the guy on his left, they're called thieves, but they're more than that. They're, they're thieves, but they're also murderers. They're also insurrectionists. They're also rebellious. And, and so the state at the time, Rome, said, there's nothing fit for you except death. And the one guy starts to taunt Jesus. Oh, I thought you were the Messiah. Why don't you go ahead and, and, and take yourself up off from this cross? And the other guy goes, are you serious? We are both deserving of this punishment that we have, but this man has done nothing wrong. And the grace part of me expects Jesus to look over at the, the murderous thief next to him and say, hey man, don't be so hard on yourself. Is that so bad? You're not totally deserving. You've done some good stuff in your life. But no, no. Instead, Jesus with the truth bomb is like, no argument there. Yeah, you totally, you deserve this. And the guy goes, remember me, would you? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you, Grace. And Grace, he says, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise today. Today. The guy hanging on the cross, just about to die, not hours from now, but minutes from now. And Jesus speaks this unbelievable word of not just truth, but also grace into his life. He says, this may be a buzzer beater. I've run out of options. Last minute, Hail Mary kind of conversion. But Jesus is saying, listen, friend, there's grace for you as well. This woman caught in adultery, who were the, the religious leaders, they, they grab her in the act, right? And then they just bring her, not him, which always kind of confused me because it takes two to commit adultery, right? But, but they grab her and bring her in because hashtag patriarchy and they like land her down in front of Jesus, some of you got that, and say, and say, Jesus, the law says she has to be executed. 
what are you going to do? And Jesus says, well, if that's what the law says, that's what truth is, then that's, by golly, what we're going to do. But in order to have some order to this thing, everybody, you got your, you got your throwing rock ready? Yeah, good. All right, here's what we're going to do. Everybody line up. And, and then the first person, first person who hasn't ever looked at a woman lustfully, you start. There's not any of you. It's the first person that, first person that hasn't ever stolen anything or the first person who hasn't said anything nasty about somebody behind their back or the first person, first person who hasn't lied about something. You guys get to go first. One by one. From the oldest to the least, from the longest memories to the shortest, they drop their rocks and they go home. And Jesus kneels down next to her and he says, has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. And he says something so profoundly gracious. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Now, truth, go and leave your life of sin. And I want to say, Jesus, which one is it? Is it, is it no one condemns you? Is it I don't condemn you or is it leave your life of sin? And Jesus, full of grace and full of truth says, yes. I don't get it. Around here at Encounter Church, we don't get it. We mess this up all the time. And you will too. But we won't stop trying because stop trying would be settling for something less than complete and utter transformation of our lives and our hearts. But we look at Jesus. And if you're a part of this church, if you consider this your church home, then you too with us, we look at Jesus and we see somebody who sees those lines in the sand of behavior and believes. And everything inside the line is, is welcome. This is how we believe. This is how we behave. And then you get to belong here. And we see Jesus recognizing that those lines of belief and behavior exist. But then we see Jesus cross over that line, grab somebody, maybe with a hug, maybe by their shirt collar, and, and bring them back over and saying, no, 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 for now, whatever the belief, whatever the behavior, you belong here with us, and we're going to fix this thing together. And so here at Encounter, this is our goal when it comes to practicing truth. This is our goal. We're not going to draw those lines up because we believe that God already drew them up for us. But we are going to cross over those lines like Jesus did to bring people far from God back into that circle of belonging and bring them to new life in Christ who's going to clean this mess up together. Just stay seated. Let's pray together.